Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Radzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Michael Horn, co-founder of the nonprofit Clayton Christensen Institute and author of several books on the future of education, including Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools, Choosing College, How to Make Better Learning Decisions Throughout Your Life, and, most recently, From Reopen to Reinvent, Recreating School for Every Child, which Arnie Duncan calls a blueprint both for what schools should be and a set of steps to help educators start moving in that direction. Michael, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Thanks so much for having me. It's a privilege to be with you all. Oh, well, we're happy to have you here. And let's start with that latest book. In fact, the subtitle. What do you mean by recreating schools for every child? Yeah, I think there's a perception out there that school maybe works for my kid, but it doesn't work for, quote unquote, those kids, right, or something like that. And I think a big argument in the book is that COVID just showed how much schools have, I would argue, not worked optimally for any child. And it just sort of revealed these enduring structural realities of how schools have been shaped that are ill-serving, not just, quote unquote, those kids or, you know, the child over there, or that you have to settle for the suboptimal experience. But it's not allowing all individuals to build their passions, fulfill their potential, and figure out how they can best contribute to the world with a sense of deep personal purpose. And, and so I really want to make the argument that we can recreate schools so that we put each and every single student in the center and driving of their learning and create something that is much more humane and helpful for individuals and society. Something I've noticed, Michael, over the past year or two, if you go to any recent education conference, if you read some of the latest white papers, and I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners have had this experience too, you'll hear again and again about the need to build new systems. It's almost become conventional wisdom at this point, at least among a certain set. And what's been less clear to me is then what, right? If we all agree that the system isn't working, then how do we build something better? And I haven't heard a lot of great answers to that question. And so I love to come across your book because it sounds like you set out to answer it. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I obviously reach a conclusion that it's going to be very grassroots driven, that we're not going to sit there from on high and mastermind the system, but that community by community, educators, parents on the ground together are really going to come up with those answers. And it's not going to look the same in every single locality or even within a district, right? It, there might be a range of answers for what that looks like, but that it's a really a grassroots driven process. And, and the book, it's really trying to say like, hey, here's some principles that Michael Horn, for better or worse, thinks should be constant across schools. But even more important, here's a playbook for you on the ground to actually start to create something that overthrows the system that isn't working for, again, I argue, every single child. Well, let's talk about one of the things we might tackle, a seemingly simple and yet complex subject, time. Mm. So how might we think about or use time differently in schools? Well, let's start with how time is used today, which is that Basically, we have a system that is intricately built around the time that students sit in seats for their classes, for their semester, for their year. 
and then effectively assigns credit based on what's known as seat time. And so the way we've constructed schools is that the time is fixed, in, in essence, with, with some variation, obviously, of absenteeism. But the learning for each child is extraordinarily variable. You are in the middle of a three-week unit in, say, your social studies class. You don't understand all the concepts because any number of reasons you come in with different level of background knowledge. You know, it's a tough time for some other reason in another class of your life or whatever else. And at the end of the three-week unit, we take a test and we move on, even if you haven't fully mastered those concepts, even if we think those are critical for future things that you might want to explore or, or learn about. And the real push in my mind is getting off that, is the time being the organizing thing in the system, to learning being the organizing principle of the system, which is to say that we move to a mastery-based learning model in which students start to learn something and they get to keep at it until they really have shown mastery and they only move on once they've demonstrated that mastery and the time becomes the variable as opposed to the fixed unit. And by lifting that, we actually start to think through Maybe some kids need to stay longer in schools, but some would be better getting out in the communities, right, and, and not being in their seats all days. Or, gee, we can rethink time of the school year because some parents, summer break is sort of the devil, right, for them of trying to figure out what to do with their children during it, or they don't have access to summer camps or enriching opportunities or, or whatever it is. We can think through more balanced or year-round school calendars for certain families. And really, we create a much more flexible definition of time, but really allowing students to dig into, A, the things that we agree they really ought to master, and then also giving them the time to go deep in the things that just they want to geek out on because it's spoken to them in some way, which right now our school system sort of says, oh, you're interested in that? That's nice. Good luck squeezing it in, so to speak, and not allowing children to sort of follow these areas of curiosity and, and passion. You know, you just brought up the idea of organizing principles in schools. And I, I want to ask you about another one because I think it's just as foundational as time. You've written that in our current system, it's assumed that resources are scarce and that for every winner, there must be a loser. Quote, that's devastating, not only for individual students, but for all of us. And I want to break that statement down for a moment if we can. Can you first tell us a little bit about how is that assumption affecting individual kids? It basically says that we have to ration uh, certain educational experiences, whether that's in higher education or advanced classes or certain opportunities that only certain students get. And that in effect, that means we're going to assign grades or labels to students to sort them out of certain tracks or pathways or possibilities. And we've recognized something that, frankly, Mr. Rogers knew a long time ago, but there's more research around growth mindset and this notion that you have agency, right, over the decisions you make and the impact that they have in the world and things of that nature. And teachers in schools talk about these things all the time. We talk about growth mindset, perseverance, grit, executive function, agency, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, if the school system says to you, gee, we had to give you a grade and at the end of this unit of time, you have a C, well, the system has labeled me and it's signaled unambiguously, A, I'm not going to give you a chance to say, explore that math future that maybe will speak to you later, just not today. But secondly, it's just labeled you. And it undermines everything we're talking about, about the importance of hard work, about the importance of agency, and about the importance of growth mindset, just by saying, Michael, you are in fact a C student in math. And there's no way you can change that label because that's who you are. Let's focus on grades, the way we talked about mm. time, because... 
you know, my girls come home from school, like, you got an A, you got a C. I've, of course, loved it better when they've brought home a portfolio, or maybe I've gone to a parent-teacher conference, and it's actually student-led, where I can see that competency. I love those things more. Could you imagine us getting rid of grades, or, or what would supplement things so that kids aren't labeled, but it's a more constructive environment for the learner, his or her caregivers or parents, and the teacher to understand that growth that we want for every kid? I love everything you just said. I'm clamoring for my kids to lead these parent-teacher conferences because I think it would be such a great opportunity, right, for them to organize a meeting, show their growth, show what they've mastered, ask their questions, and sort of lead us through that. The, the skill set that maps to the academic learning, right, that you do through that is just awesome if you think about it. To answer the question directly, I think there's a few ways at it. You know, in the book, I, I sort of say my bias is that we shouldn't eliminate grades right away. And I tell the story of my mother and getting rip-roaring angry about a school near where I grew up in Maryland that I guess eliminated the A through F grades. And she said, can you believe how they're dumbing down learning and making it less rigorous and this and that and all the rest? And I think we should instead sort of lean into the fact that the school system as currently presented, when it's time-based, when it has these fixed grades, that's not exactly rigorous allowing someone to master only 70% of the material and get the C and move on anyway, I'm not sure there's any rigor in that. So to me, the first thing to do is really focus on breaking down how the current system works and is not rigorous and is anathema to growth mindset and the fact that maybe, quote unquote, you have a 70% of understanding of math so far, but that just means you haven't yet mastered it, right? It doesn't mean you will never master it. You just need a little more time. And then we can deconstruct that and move to a mastery-based model. Then I think we can confront the question of, okay, so what do the grades in this look like? Like, how do we get to something that is actually reflective of the things that you just talked about and shows that growth over time as opposed to the fixed labels that I think are so injurious in the current system? And frankly, like, we can call those whatever we want to if it makes people feel good. <laughs> but I think the big thing, right, is that we're trying to get away from the notion of it being fixed, that you can't master something later on, and that we start representing that work, to your point, right, in a very different way. The portfolio of work, the evidence that someone has mastered something, which can take a lot of different forms, and just how exciting and, again, more rigorous and more motivating for the child that all can be. I want to go back to that idea of the collective, Michael. So let's assume that you and Greg are the C students. You've been labeled. I am the A student, of course. Can you tell me why does the label of C student for you and Greg, how does that hold me back? If I'm the parent of an A student, you know, why should I be concerned about grades? Why should I want to move to this other system? Yeah, it's a great question because the reality is that this A system incentivizes you, you as in Ryan or, or the child, right, to learn how to play, quote unquote, the game of school. It's all about the extrinsic things, right? And I will speak from some personal experience. Like you do everything that you need to do to quote unquote, just get the grade, get by, but you're not focused on the learning itself, the intrinsic nature of what schooling is supposed to be about. You're not thinking about the growth or, or building these life skills that will be, frankly, more valuable to you than whether, quote unquote, you got the grade or not when you enter the real world. We see all these fights right now, really fights over scarcity, to go back to the initial question, around like gifted and talented programs or magnet schools or exam schools and things of that nature. Well, Ryan, what if you were able to master the material in math like 
super quick. Like you breeze through the curriculum a couple months, maybe, right? You did a year's worth of work and then you have to sit there just growing bored for the rest of the year. What would it look like if you could instead say like, I want to go deeper in the curriculum or I want to go faster or I want to do this project that pulls together from several disciplines, the skills and sharpen my understanding of X, Y, and Z, right? And like do something way more engaging. And by the way, if we're really worried about the college game, that would be pretty differentiating. It's not like it would cut off opportunity for you. It would create it, but it would be way more intrinsically motivating with deeper life lessons for when you get to do hard work, you can keep doing it and go deeper and grow. And that's the purpose ultimately is to help you be the most unique version of yourself to develop you into, you know, as Mr. Rogers would say, right, there's no one like you and it's you I like. And that should be the purpose of school, not competing against me as the C student on this kind of narrow yardstick. Michael, I'm pretty sure Ryan had in mind when he assigned us a C, uh, curious, creative, caring. Exactly. I'll let our fine <laughs> listeners say, decide yeah. what the A stands yeah. for. I would say that was an A-plus answer, but we're getting away from that. That was uh, an answer that demonstrates competence and uh, mastery. Very, very good. Thank you. We're talking with Michael Horn, co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute and the author of multiple books, white papers, and articles on education including a popular Substack newsletter called The Future of Education. Michael, you've proposed that when it comes to schools, innovation has to be somebody's job, their full-time job, that we can't just expect innovation and advancement to happen on its own. Why not? Because honestly, it's sort of the uh, Stephen Covey truths that he pointed out long ago, which is that the urgent tasks of today and tomorrow, even if they're not the most important, will just crowd out the important work of, of innovating for tomorrow in the longer run. We see it right now in schools, right, with all the pressures bearing down on educators and the school board fights and the yelling at the superintendent and all the things that the immediate and urgent just crowd out more important work of long-term transformation, which takes time. And you sort of need to be shielded from all of that day-to-day -day stuff that can creep in and crowd out your focus on what you're trying to create for students. And so giving one person, a small group of people, just the time and space and protection really from all those day-to-day -day pressures so that they can full-time be thinking about how do we innovate, how do we help people make progress, and making sure that parents and students see this as in their self-interest, not as like, oh, trust me, take the medicine, it'll be good for you, you just can't see it yet. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that's what it takes to create something more structural and enduring to be clear, like you can do routine or incremental innovations in your current job. It's those bigger departures from the status quo in business as usual that takes that autonomy and that full dedication to creating that new innovation. I can practically see the superintendents who are listening right now nodding along. <laughs> well, happily, in this corner of the world, we can turn to dozens of examples of school systems that now have directors of instructional innovation. In fact, over the past decade, it's become sort of normal to have this full-time position. And we see it in the Remake Learning Network, not only in our schools, but also our museums and libraries. Michael, can you give us one or two examples somewhere in the world where you see this type of person or office internal to an organization that is a provocative model for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll start with, frankly, your network, right? Which is you see these museums and libraries and they're outside the day-to-day -day pressures of the schools. 
So they've been able to create education programs essentially from scratch without those day-to-day pressures, right? And it's the individual that oversees that program that has the full authority to craft these engaging and enriching learning opportunities for students without sort of being tied to the lesson plan, the unit plan, the test that's going to come up with more freedom to rethink those elements. So I think that's actually a great example from your own network. I would say Summit Public Schools, which features prominently in the book, is another example. It's it's not that they have a chief innovation officer per se, although lots of districts around the country have created those sorts of positions, but it's that when they're creating a new innovation or a new structure, they put someone whose sole job is to focus on ideating testing and learning, failing forward, and ultimately perfecting that new model, or deciding, hey, we were wrong, this isn't a good idea, and shelving it before it takes up too much bandwidth or wastes people's time. But I think that it's not just an innovation officer who by themselves can do this. They have to then find someone who's going to actually lead the new innovation efforts and have that be their full-time job. And you've had the idea of actually taking this one step further, calling for a research and development effort that will help design these new learning models with inputs from all, you know, educators, technologists, researchers, families, everyone. And I'm wondering, could you say a little bit about that? Like, in your mind, what would that effort look like? And has there been any push so far to get something like that off the ground? Yeah, so I'm super intrigued by what Transcend Education has done, where they've created this sort of model exchange, right? Where they basically say, There are educators around the country who, in teams just as you've described, have created a range of new models, whether it's, you know, a new SEL model from Castle or whether it's School of One, then New Classrooms Teach to One, right, model for teaching middle school math, you know, examples like this. And they basically have pulled it together and these model providers come in to the school systems with which they work, and they are actually accountable for the metrics that the school system has said they care about when they implement it. So take the easy example of new classrooms and teach to one for math. They're able to say, only pay us (laughs) if this actually works for your students, right? We're going to be on the full hook for it so that it's not just sort of the textbook model of buy it and trust us and we'll see you in seven years for the renewal, but really some accountability around that. And and I think that's the R&D effort. Actually, when you're paying for success, every single time you're going into a school or implementing these models, you're getting actual data. Is this model working and how do we have to tweak it or change it to improve it? Or frankly, does it not work for certain students in certain circumstances? And then we can get a more nuanced understanding of where those are or where they aren't. Michael, we want to take a turn in this interview and ask you about another book that you've written, one we didn't mention at the top of the episode. It's called Goodnight Box. And it's a children's book about fitness. In fact, you wrote it together with your wife. Can you tell us about that book? Yeah, absolutely. I would say this is my own journey. This can't just be about academics, that like living a fulfilled life is also about wellness and having a growth mindset and things of that nature and reaching the whole individual, I think is so important. And CrossFit is something that entered my life a couple months after my wife and I got married. I think you're supposed to do these things before you get married, before the wedding, so you look good. But <laughs> in my case, I got the memo afterwards. And, and it totally changed my life. It changed how I thought about work-life balance. It changed how I thought about sleep, nutrition, fitness, community, right? All these things to be a better person, maximize how I live and think through purpose and fulfillment and things like that. 
when we had kids, we have twin daughters, passing on those habits of fitness and good functional movement and, and fun were something that was really important to us. And so it seemed, you know, there's like all these good night moon spinoffs, if you will. And so we did the good night box one focused on CrossFit. But I'll tell you, our larger vision, frankly, is that there are just an incredible number of really awesome strong female athletes in the CrossFit community doing incredible stuff and in different moments in their careers where they had to exhibit growth mindset or trust the process, right? That being the outcome as opposed to something they couldn't control of whether they won or lost. As really role models and exemplars, not because like they're the first woman to do X, but just because like they happen to be women doing awesome stuff. And so that's another piece of this is how do we create more role models in the literature for our kids? Because when you become a father of daughters, you realize even the squirrels in books are male characters. And so we have a set of drafts, I should say, they're fairly far along, of other female athletes having a greater range of awesome role models that they can look up to and aspire to be and think through this balanced, healthy lifestyle was something that became really important to us. So just really to inspire some parents and kids together to move and have some fun and be exposed to these broader, healthy habits. As a fellow girl dad, I'll say yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, how can people find out more about you and the work you're doing? There's a variety of ways. You can check out my uh, Substack newsletter, The Future of Education. Uh, look up Michael B. Horn, or you can go to my website, michaelbhorn.com. Or of course, you know, Twitter, as long as it's around, uh, at Michael B. Horn uh, works there. And then I host a number of podcasts myself. So The Future of Education, Future You, Class Disrupted. Those are some of the ways that they can keep abreast, if you will, of the work, but also stay in touch. This isn't a solitary activity, right? It's a community of us trying to broaden the community and help people find their way through it. Well, given what you've just said, Michael, we have one last question for you. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? I think the biggest thing from the parent perspective is remember that they have a voice in this equation, that they are not passive recipients of school, just like their kids are not passive recipients of knowledge being dumped into them in a class period or some metaphor like that. They have an opportunity to want to see their child be fulfilled and figure out who they are and how they can contribute into this world and, and be the most special, unique version of themselves. And so don't settle in that equation. And I'd say for the educators, the same thing. The, today's system is through no fault of any of you teaching in it, is asking you to make judgments about kids at arbitrary points in time that don't match their development. Push back against that and look for the pockets where you can create something new that allows all individuals to keep progressing and grow. Thanks again to Michael Horn, an innovator, an author, co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute, and a CrossFit enthusiast. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.